Hello and welcome to What Monkeys Do. My name is Morten Kamp-Andersen and this is a podcast about what it takes to make a change and make it stick. I've never been very happy. Not for long periods at a time at least. Of course, I've had my highs, birth of my children, marriage, promotions, etc. But in every day, I don't have a very high level of happiness. At least that's not what I think, because I don't really know how other people feel, what their level of happiness or well-being is, so it's hard to compare. But I believe that I have a lower level of happiness compared to many people. And some years ago, I found the reason for why that is. It's called the hedonic treadmill model. It's very popular, widespread theory. You might have read about it in books such as The Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman. Essentially, by that theory, we all have an individual level of happiness that we're, so to speak, born with. And we can have good things happen to us and our happiness go up for a while. And we can have negative things happen to us and we become more unhappy for a short while. But after that short while, our happiness goes back to our starting point, our individual base level. But that all points to a very bleak picture for our ability to impact our happiness. Because by that model, we are born with a preset level of happiness, and there's not much we can do about that. And that does not bode well for me. But is that model true? Can we permanently increase our level of happiness? Well, let's find out in this episode of What Monkeys Do. My guest today is a professor of psychology at Michigan State University. He is internationally known for his research on happiness and subjective well-being and the effect of life events on life satisfaction. He earned his PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois. And one of the things I do like a lot about his work other than his books is that he's also an outspoken proponent for for replicant studies, basically conducting follow-up research so we can increase the confidence that we have in the results of the original study. And especially after the replicant crisis that happened in psychology a couple of years ago, I think that we need more people like that. He's written several books. I've just finished The Great Myth of Personality, but I'll also just highlight Stability of Happiness. Welcome to you, Richard Lucas. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this topic because this is something that interests me a lot. And in this episode, we'll talk about personality, we'll talk about happiness and how they fit together. But because these two constructs are quite complicated, we'll first look at what is personality and then what happiness is and how they uh, affect each other. And then finally, we'll try to find out what can we, if at all, do to change our level of happiness. But before we begin, can you maybe tell us a little bit about who you are, and what is fascinating about our personality and happiness? Yeah, sure. I do consider myself to be a personality psychologist. So that's someone, you know, who who focuses on uh, this construct of, of personality. And what I try to do with that is often to focus on how much of personality we can change, what might be causing changes in personality or what personality can itself cause. And then I also do link that a lot to uh, subjective well-being. So understanding how these stable characteristics that we think of as personality are related to well-being. Um, I think that my interest in it is, uh, you know, pretty general and pretty broad. And I think it is because of so many things that are fascinating about personality. And I think maybe the thing that stands out to me most is that we have to study it in the first place because, you know, this is um, who we are as individuals. That's what personality is. It's some 
something that is presumably the result of the thoughts that we have inside of our heads and the experiences that we've had in the past. And the fact that we don't immediately have insight into that, that we don't know why we do the things that we do, we don't know how to change our personality, um, and that we need psychologists out there studying you know, what it is that causes this. I think that fact is something that's, that's kind of interesting to me. So, um, so I like, you know, applying the scientific method, trying to understand who we are and how we can make those changes. Great. So you mentioned personality a lot. Let's start with that. Maybe just start by telling us what, what is personality and how do we measure personality? It corresponds pretty well to the way that I think that we use the word in, in everyday language. Um, I think the standard definition that I would use is that it's our characteristic pattern of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So it's really, it incorporates lots of things about us. It's, again, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, all those things fit as personality. Uh, but it's the characteristic pattern. It's something that is a pattern that's stable. A person exhibits that over time, and it kind of defines who that person is. So we really look for all those things as part of what we mean uh, by personality. And obviously, patterns and thoughts and behavior, you would think that that's pretty fluid. So one day I act in, in one way, another day I act in another. But um, personality is something that you say is pretty stable. So those patterns of thoughts and behaviors are, are pretty stable. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, and obviously we do change from day to day. So some days I feel more outgoing than on other days. Some days I am more constrained in terms of how outgoing I can be. Some days I might wake up feeling like I can work really hard, and other days I feel I feel lazy. Um, so those things do change from day to day. But those general tendencies, if we kind of look at things over time, or the averages of our behaviors and our thoughts and our feelings, then we do find some amounts of stability for long periods of time. And in fact, we can recognize this in other people. We know that we have some friends who are, you know, we can count on to be very punctual when we set up a meeting with them or to be always want to go out to a party or something like that. And it's that that pattern that we recognize in other people that makes us choose people as friends or as co-workers. That stability that we recognize there, I think, is what we typically mean when we think about a, a person's personality. Mm. And And why is it important for psychology to have a construct like Uh, like personality, what is what is the purpose of of making that and 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 correlating that with so many things? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things we do know about personality is it relates to important outcomes. And so again, I think that in our daily lives, we have an intuition that it does. Again, we choose partners because we think that they're going to be a nice person to live with. Uh, we choose our friends because we think that they'll be there for us in the times when it matters. We think that those characteristics do something. Um, there's something that we either just enjoy being with or, or has some benefit for us. And I think psychologists approach personality with the same goals in mind, that we know that, that people that have certain characteristics have different outcomes in their lives. So researchers have studied the personality trait of conscientiousness, which mm. is, again, how punctual, how organized, how a little bit driven um, these sorts of characteristics. And we know that those are correlated, at least, with outcomes like uh, outcomes related to health and mortality, outcomes related to career success. And oftentimes those associations between personality traits and these consequential outcomes are as high as uh, other things that we typically think of as being important, like intelligence or socioeconomic status. And so I think that personality psychologists want to know what is it about people's personality that leads to these important outcomes with the aim of just general understanding, but also if people want to live healthier lives, more successful lives, is there anything we can learn from those personality associations that can help people do that better? Hmm. 
So you're talking about conscientiousness there. How do you measure personality? Yeah, that's a good question. So personality is something that's kind of hidden, right? We have a sense that someone is conscientious and some people are more conscientious than others, but there isn't some thing that we can tap into that is is this perfect indicator. So a lot of times what personality psychologists do is, is they ask for people's impressions of their own personality or someone else's personality. And then what we do is we try to then use that as a starting point, but then really question ourselves in, as, in terms of whether or not that's a good measure or not. So I might first ask people, you know, their self-reports of their personality, but then also ask their friends and family members mm. and see to the extent to which they those those measures agree. But then we could also do behavioral measures too. So we could actually look at what people do. Are, are they punctual over time and use that as an indicator of how conscientious they are. Now, each one of these measures is not perfect. And so, you know, that's a constant, you know, effort within personality psychology is to improve our measures, to ask questions about our measures, to see whether um, they're doing a good job. I think when I read through literature, there is one way of measuring that seems to be the one that academia used by far the most, which is the big five. Mm -hmm. So that has a long history back from Hans Eysenck and all the way up to now. But that seems to be the, the gold standard for talking about personality in academia. Is that is that right? Yeah. So the big five, I think, is is the standard way that we would conceptualize personality. The, if, if we wanted a broad measure of, of personality, um, one that encompasses a lot of the different ways people differ from one another, the big five would, would be probably the most popular way of doing that right now. Yeah. And it's self-reporting. So I get a questionnaire and I fill that out and then I get my scores on the big five. And I just think that on some days, I probably see myself as a little bit more outgoing and maybe sort of achieving more. But then I have other days when, you know, it's raining outside and I don't really feel so good about myself. So I might score myself differently. But on the other hand, you also say that personality is a very stable. So basically, I report my own personality and I feel a little bit different about myself from day to day. But on the other hand, it's a stable thing. How does that go hand in hand? What you're pointing out is exactly right, is that I can take a questionnaire today and it might be different than the way that I take it tomorrow. And, and so I think that personality psychologists are generally pretty careful about interpreting the precision with which you know we get these measures. Um, and, and we might know that there is some error there. Uh, so what we would, we would typically find is that, yes, your reports on this personality measure might change from day to day, but they're within a general range. And that range is relatively consistent. And your range might be different than my range. And so we wouldn't necessarily say, okay, you are a 123 out of 140 on this trait. We would get a general sense about what your your uh, trait level is. And that's what we would uh, think of as your personality score. And those that range is, is generally pretty stable. Okay. I think many of our listeners may know others. MBTI or Myers-Briggs is a very well-known, outside of academia, it's actually probably the most used way of talking about personality, either for self-development or in companies when you want to either select employees or you want to develop employees. So Myers-Briggs is, is, is wildly used. I know you critique MBTI. And um, what do you think is the issue with, with that particular way of looking at personality? Yeah, so it is definitely uh, widely used. I think a lot of people know what scores they would get from the MB MBTI. And, um, and I think that there are some things that are valuable about it. 
I think that within academic psychology, we typically don't use it for a couple of reasons. One is that the way that it's scored, or the way that it's typically scored, it isn't always scored this way, but one of the ways that it is typically scored is to put people into categories. So you're one category or you're another. And it doesn't really distinguish among people within those categories. And what we've learned from research within personality psychology is that individual differences don't generally work in that categorical way. Usually there's a distribution of scores. So like with extroversion, it isn't the case that there's a group of people who are clearly extroverts and a group of people who are clearly introverts and you're one or the other. Instead, there's generally a distribution. And most people are really actually in the middle of the distribution on extroversion. And then there are some people that are far out in that distribution that we think of as extroverts and some people who are far out on the, on, on the other end, and we think of them as introverts. But again, most people are in the middle. And so with the underlying idea of the MBTI, it's, it's more putting people in those boxes, which isn't you know the way that the personality really works. The other thing I think is that it doesn't have quite as much of um, this, this long empirical history linking this to uh, like some of the models like the big five does. So it, it wasn't um, necessarily as empirically based, even if they do do research on the validity of the measure now or the utility of the measure now. So I think that kind of having that long history of empirical research behind it um, makes us believe that what you know the big five might be capturing might be a little bit more robust, um, a little bit. Uh, tap into uh, things that we that we know more about than the MBTI does. The items on the MBTI are prob- are often similar to the things that we would have. It's just the way that you combine those and score them that might not be uh, exactly the way that we would categorize people's personality using these well-established models. So, for instance, introversion and extroversion is the same on both MBTI and Big Five, but the difference is that with MBTI, either you are introvert or you are extrovert, whereas with the Big Five, you are somewhere on a scale. And I can definitely see that if you are a little bit introverted, you are basically grouped together with a person who is very introverted. And if you are a little bit extroverted, you are grouped together with somebody who's very extroverted, whereas you probably have more in common with a person who's a little bit introverted rather than the extreme extroverted. So that's, that's I guess, is the difference. Yeah, and it also goes back to your question about the, uh, you know, whether today I feel I answer the question a little bit differently than I do tomorrow. If we're putting you on this continuum, then those little differences don't make that much of a, of a difference in terms of how we interpret your personality. But a slight difference in the way that you respond to that scale could completely change whether you're categorized as an extrovert or an introvert if we're only going based on this categorical approach. So there's there's more of a chance that we get that category wrong as opposed to just slightly off when we use some sort of uh, dimensional scoring. So obviously a really interesting question about personality is uh, or topic is where do we get it from where where did it come and so how much of of our personality do i get from my parents i is inherent and how much is coming from my upbringing and how much can i influence myself do we know anything about that yeah so i mean that's a definitely a really big question within personality psychology is is where is it coming from you know and so we do have things like twin studies where we look at people especially twins who might have been separated at birth and then we measure their personality um later on in adulthood and say how similar are twins who grew up in different households uh, to one another in terms of their personality. And, you know, one of the things that we know that many, many characteristics, most characteristics, most individual differences do show a lot of similarity across those twins, even if they're separated at birth, which suggests that something about their genes are responsible for the personality traits that they have. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. So the way that genes lead to personality could be through 
um, things that people elicit from their environment. Uh, it could be through the way that they interpret things in their environment, or it could be more direct in terms of, you know, there might be something that directly influences the emotions that people experience on a, on a typical basis. So there does seem to be some heritability there. Um, when we look for, you know, common experiences that people have that then lead to the personality traits that they have later on, it's a little bit harder to find systematic differences uh, in, for instance, the childhood upbringing uh, of people who are extroverts versus introverts or between those who are conscientious and those who are not. So I, I think that there's good evidence that something about our upbringing or environment helps influence the personality traits that we have, but narrowing down and really precisely, precisely identifying what those things are has been difficult for us. So there isn't something that I can point to uh, as this critical thing that's happened to us that, that causes our personality traits. I think uh, those um, twin festivals that there are, where you basically, where basically twins and and uh, twins separated at birth meet and then are being exposed to all sorts of questions every year, are really interesting. And there are definitely some things that we. It's probably the most valid way of finding out how much of things are, are genetic and and what is environment. And some things seems to be very high, like height and eye color seem to be very much but down to our genes, which particular sports interest we have very little. I, I seem to have read somewhere that it's something around 60% for many of our personality traits that are down to genetics, which means that there is still a, a 40%, which is not. But we don't really know what that 40% is because we don't have sy systematic data for that. Is Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and actually, some of the estimates might even be a little bit lower than that, 50% or around there. Um, and yeah, so we don't know exactly what those causes are in terms of or what the, the factors in that 40 to 50% are. But again, we also don't know of the the 50% that's heritable. Um, you know, I think that one of the, the dangers, I think, the, in, the interpretation of those findings is that because it's heritable, it means that it's not changeable, uh, means that there isn't something about the environment that's that's playing into those, it can be the fact that what we have, you know, built into us uh, elicits reaction, you know, it makes us react to the environment in a certain way. And if we could figure out what that process was, even that heritable part might be changeable if we knew more about how those processes were working. Okay. So that leads me to the stability of our personality. Do we know a little bit about how stable our personality is? So if I had my big five taken when I was 15, when I was 25, 35, and so on, how stable would that be over time? Yeah, so that's one of the things we do know a lot about now. There's a lot of big studies that have been conducted, either in huge samples over reasonably long time, periods of time, you know, 10, 20 years, or smaller samples that have been conducted for even longer periods of time, so 50, 60 years. And so we do know that there is quite a bit of stability in personality traits. It does change over time. So there are periods of the life where stability is higher than others. So when you go through adolescence, there's more room for change. The stability is lower from 15 to 25 than it is from 35 to 45. But there is stability across all those those different periods of the life. Once we get to middle age, then stability coefficients get really high. So there, there's still some change going on, but the but there is quite a bit of stability at that point. And I think neuroticism, which is one of the the big five, that tends to decrease over age. Is that correct? So yeah, if you do pass the 35, that's actually one of the the, the big five that do decrease. 
So we know a little bit about mean level changes as well. And so there's there are some good things that happen. So there's something called the maturity principle that people kind of, as they get older, they kind of change in ways that make them seem more mature. So conscientiousness uh, seems to increase. Agreeableness sometimes increases. Neuroticism tends uh, tend to decrease over time. And so there are some changes that typically happen, not with everybody, but on average, that are you know positive changes. Yes. So, and just to maybe read, recap for, for people that don't know the big five. So the five dimensions, uh, one is extroversion, um, which you can score high or low one. So I guess if you score low, you you are an introvert. And neuroticism is another one, which is generally considered a, a poor one to score high on. We'll get to that a little bit later, maybe. Neuroticism is essentially how how you see things in a positive or negative way. Would that be correct? Yeah, emotionality and that, that sort of thing. Yep. Openness, which is the dimension of how open you are to ideas, thoughts, and and new experiences. Agreeableness is how, could you say, friendly, maybe, friendliness. And warmth, yes, uh, characteristics warmth. like that. Mm-hmm. And the last one was... Con- do we get conscientiousness? Conscientiousness, yet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and that one is, how do you explain that one? Um, kind of how uh, there's there's different facets to all these, but so how orderly you are, how um, hardworking you are, some of these characteristics often fall with, under conscientiousness. Yes. Okay. We correlate them with many different outcomes. So, for instance, people who tend to uh, get a higher pay rise than others are the ones who score lower on agreeableness and and maybe higher on conscientiousness as well. So, basically, if you if you have the courage to go into your manager's office and say, "I demand this pay rise because I'm worth that," then you're more likely to get it. And people who score lower on agreeableness is more likely to do that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sometimes something spectacular happens in our life, good or bad. And sometimes, obviously, it's the it's those events, we would call them significant life events. They can leave a mark on us. They will definitely leave a mark on our life story, the story that we tell about our life. But do they also leave a mark on our personality? Yeah, so that's one been one big surprise, I think, in the literature on personality is is how hard it's been to find effects of significant life events on the personality traits that people have. So there's been a lot of work on this. I mean, I will say that studies on this are hard to do. Uh, it requires having a large group of people that we follow for very long periods of time and where we regularly measure their personality so we have enough information to know whether that personality has changed. And so I think that in until recently, recent years, we haven't had those large studies that have allowed us to do this. Now, there are more and more of those studies that have been conducted. So far, when we've used these studies to look at the effects of life events, the results have been somewhat inconsistent. So for instance, we know from adolescence to through early adulthood and to to middle age, conscientiousness goes up. That's the kind of the typical pattern that we see, and it goes up relatively dramatically. That's the kind of the biggest period of change that we've seen. And so a lot of personality psychologists assumed that if we would be able to take that period of growth and look for significant life events that might actually be responsible for the changes that are occurring. So lots of people start their first job during that period of time. Lots of people become parents during that period of time. Lots of people get married during that period of time. And so what we try to do is use these big longitudinal studies to to link those changes in conscientiousness to those life events. And the results have been kind of surprisingly um, not robust in terms of, of being able to link those in that way. 
So I think that we we have been surprised that we haven't been able to find those associations as much as we thought we would. But we might we also are starting to think about some of the problems or some of the challenges methodologically that might make us not be able to find those right away. So it might be the case that you have a child, but it isn't until three or four years later that actually the effect of that builds up enough to for us to see the effect on conscientiousness. And the same with later uh, events that happen to us. So if we lose a spouse or if we get you know married some point later on in our life, the way that that affects us might be a little bit more idiosyncratic. And so it might not have an average effect, even though it's affecting some people significantly. Okay. That was a little bit of our personality. We have a personality. It's basically made up of the patterns of our behavior and thoughts, relatively stabled, best measured uh, through the, the big five. A large part of our personality is actually something we inherit. It's genetic, uh, about 50% on, on most of the items. And even though that our significant life events matters a lot to our identity and to our life story, it actually doesn't impact our personality as much as, as we would think. And personality is interesting because it correlates with a lot of life events or life outcomes. And one of them is happiness. So let's have a look at that. But before we do that, let's have a, a break. Okay, so that was personality. And the thing about personality is it's it's something that we cannot see. We have to ask people to get an understanding of their personality, although we can use other ways as well. Happiness is a bit the same. So we cannot you know, just look at people and see how happy they are. We cannot measure it objectively. We have to ask them. That's also why we often call it subjective well-being. And happiness is one of those things that if we ask people, most people would say that's a good thing. We want to be happy. That Some people might even say that's the, the purpose of life is to have a happy life. So let's start off. What, what is happiness and how do we measure happiness or, or well-being? So again, I think like personality, uh, the way that we in psychology use happiness or subjective well-being is pretty consistent with, I think, how we would do it in uh, a non-scientist when a non-scientist would talk about it. Um, I do think it's a little bit important to distinguish happiness, a couple of meanings of happiness. One is um, this positive emotion that you might feel in a particular moment. And I think that we have the sense that it's something like joy or these positive feelings about something that's happening. And the reason that we sometimes distinguish the word happiness from subjective well-being is because we can also think about happiness as this bigger thing that you experience in your life where you just have this general sense that my life is a good one that it's going well it might not have positive emotion every minute but i have some sort of overall evaluation of that life as being positive and we we sometimes use happiness in that way to, in, in this broader sense so i too use the word happiness to kind of mean that broader thing in our writings we try to be more precise by talking about that broader thing as being subjective well-being because it might not necessarily correspond with feeling joy every moment of your life. It might also involve satisfaction with things that might actually be challenging and difficult in, in our lives. So what are some of the questions that you ask a person that he or she evaluates on? Yeah, so I think that again, we can we have different ways we can do this. There is no perfect way of measuring happiness. So sometimes it's very simple and we will ask them, are you satisfied with your life or on a scale from 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? And we assume that people whose lives are going well and who have good things in their lives will uh, respond more positively to those items. We also have this idea that you know, people who are who have a good life or who have a life that they like 
will experience more positive moments in that life. So we can do things like, you know, signal people with text messages a couple times a day and ask them, how are you feeling at this moment? And then we can aggregate those over time to see whether they have more good moments in their life. And so these are some of the, the different ways that we assess uh, happiness in people's lives. And I suppose, like with personality, I mean, that could also depend on which day that you ask me to what I think my level of overall happiness is. Yes, definitely. And so especially if we ask about emotions and feelings, those fluctuate much more than personalities do. And so uh, how people feel Monday of this week might be very different than how they feel on Friday of this week. Uh, how they feel at eight in the morning might feel very different than how they feel, you know, before they go to bed. And so definitely if we take that sampling of emotions perspective on measuring happiness, we know that there's a lot more fluctuations that go along. But even when we talk about life satisfaction, so how satisfied are you with in general, that is stable over time, but not quite as stable as personality traits. Okay. So happiness is something that we we are interested in because we know that's an outcome most people would like. And I guess from a psychological point of view, we're trying to find out what factors influence the level of happiness and what good does it bring to be happy, so to speak. I can see that a lot of the studies that I have looked at in this respect are very it's based on on correlations. And I don't really want to say the obvious correlations does not equal ca causality, but it is true that it doesn't. So I guess I know that people who are happy, they generally also, uh, most of them might be married or they might be living in safe countries, or they may have some specific coping strategies that they're working well with. Some of the things that we see from a lot of the research, but how much do we know whether, you know, they are happy because they're in a good marriage or because that they're in a in a marriage because they are, which way does the arrow point so to speak right yeah absolutely i mean i think that this is a, a really important issue that, that again we're struggling with as researchers who study these topics and i think that people who are reading about it you know in the popular press i think need to be careful about these sorts of things um because we do we want to look at this evidence and we want to interpret it causally because we want to know what we can do to change our happiness or a lot of people do And I think that the way that I perceive the field is that we are at a stage where we've kind of gone through, we've used as much information as we can to get a really good descriptive sense of, of what the happy person looks like. And so it is often very correlational. It has advantages over some other areas in psychology is that we have often representative samples of populations where we can get pretty good information about what are the things that correlate with well-being. But it is true that we are left with correlational uh, data and, and we don't necessarily know what causes it. So I think that at this point where we have a pretty good descriptive sense of what that looks like, and, and I think people are developing theories that they can then test with additional evidence for what the causal factors are there. Um, I will say that it's a tricky area because it possibly is the case that there are causal factors that are going to be difficult to study experimentally. So if it is the case that, you know, your SES, your socioeconomic status has a major impact, major causal impact on your happiness, it's going to be hard for us to uh, use some of the typical methods that we would have for establishing causality to establish the, the, the importance of that factor. But what, uh, what things do we know that at least correlates highly with happiness? Yeah, I mean, so some of the ones that people don't like are, are one of the ones is that I do think that income correlates with with happiness. You know, there's debates right now about the size of that effect. There was just a, a, a study that got a lot of attention that just came out showing that even among wealthy people, that having more money is correlated with with more happiness. Again, the debates are about whether it's a big effect or a small effect, but it is there. I think it's pretty consistent that people who have higher incomes and more wealth are happier than 
than people who are lower. I think that there's a number of health characteristics that we can point to on disability status, these sorts of things that I think are associated with lower levels of well-being. And then I think beyond that, I think that, uh, I mean, personality, we do, you know, that's also a big predictor of happiness. Um, and then other things like, uh, you know, people often point to social relationships as being important uh, for happiness as well. And again, with all of those, the point that you made that we don't know necessarily whether they're causal factors or outcomes or the result of some other variable that's causing both of these, uh, something that we always have to consider. Okay. Some of my relevant big five factors is that I am an introvert. Uh, I score very high on neuroticism and I score low on agreeableness. I, I mentioned them because I think they're relevant here. With that information, can you say something about a group of thousand Moltons, how they would be likely to feel regarding uh, happiness? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it is the case that all three of those would be, uh, would we'd be predisposed you to, I mean, or they would be associated with lower levels of happiness. And so those are some of the big personality traits that do seem to be correlated. So people who are high in neuroticism are generally lower in uh, reports of subjective well-being. Um, people who are you know, agreeableness uh, also an extroversion, those are kind of the bigger ones there. Now, again, I, I think that one of the other things to keep in mind about happiness and the distributions of happiness is that actually most people tend to be towards the positive end of the scale. So if we do have a one to 10 or zero to 10 scale on happiness, in Western countries, at least, the means, relatively wealthy Western countries, at least, the means tend to be around seven or eight on those scales. And there aren't that many people that are dropping below six or five uh, on these things. And so when we talk about some of these associations with personality traits or even with income, you know, we're talking about relatively happy or, re you know, relatively more or less happy, not kind of that these factors make people depressed in their lives or things like that. So I can I can take comfort in that I might not be as happy as as most, but at least I'm not dropping off the scale and and at a six is actually a solid six. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. And obviously, you can also be. So if I think about my life and how happy I am in my life, I might think in different parts of my life or different roles I have. I might think about my work and I might have, have one number. I might think about my home, my family situation as one number. I might think about my friends and hobbies and so on. So is that is that normal that people think about their overall subjective happiness as 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 having different different subcategories, subnumbers, or are there are there one some categories that account for more than others? Yeah, um, uh, it's it's an interesting question in terms of whether or not we kind of build up our happiness from all the different components of our lives. So, you know, one model of, of how people make judgments about their life as a whole is they'll, they'll look and say, okay, is my relationship good? Is my work good? Is my health good? And, and basically evaluate their happiness in each of those domains and then kind of average those to say, how happy am I on average? Now, another model, though, uh, is that that people actually are just either happy or not, or, you know, they fall somewhere on this, this dimension. And then that basically shapes how they view their relationship and their job and their health, and it actually influences their perception of the different domains in their lives. And I think actually, there's probably evidence for both of those. I think that people who are happy in general might be okay with their job, even if objectively, it's not a good job or has some bad characteristics. But having a bad job, I also do think is probably going to be likely to have an impact on people's overall happiness. So when we look at, when we try to measure those things explicitly, if I say, how satisfied are you with your relationship? How satisfied are you with your job? How satisfied are you with your health? 
what we find is that sometimes there are stronger correlations among those ratings than we would expect just based on the objective characteristics of those domains, suggesting again that there is this kind of top-down view of, of all the different areas of our lives. But there is also some evidence that if we change your job, make it better or worse, that, that that can also have an impact on the global judgments that you provide about your life as a whole. Yeah, I would I would think that the things that you attach a lot of meaning to or a big part of your identity, those parts would probably take up more of the overall um, part of your overall happiness. So in, in parts where your job is a big part of your identity and also maybe the time that you spend, then there can almost be a one-to-one correlation between how happy you are with your work compared to how satisfied you are with your life in general, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that's a really intuitive idea, and, and a lot of psychologists have have thought that would be the case too. I think it still might be. When we try to investigate that explicitly, so for instance, if we have a group of people and we say, how important is your job to you? Hmm. And then we correlate, we kind of look at the differences in the association between job satisfaction and life satisfaction, that importance rating doesn't really change the association as much as we would expect it to, which has been surprising to psychologists. I think uh, it might be surprising to you and your listeners. So I think that intuition makes a lot of sense, but we haven't found a lot of evidence for that. Now, there might be some technical reasons about the way that we measure these things that are not allowing us to find that pattern that you would expect and that psychologists have tried to find. We, there isn't a lot of evidence uh, in the way that we measure these uh, for that type of effect. But again, I, I agree that it's totally intuitive um, and it might be due to the methods that we're using to assess it. Oh, that's really interesting uh, because the, I, I would have thought that that would have been how it was. So that's really interesting. Now, I, I, I think most people would know or have guessed that our personality, uh, our genetic makeup is, is a large part of that. I don't think many people would assume that happiness and our level of happiness is is something that we're born with um, or is heritable. What do we know about how how much genetics play a role in our level of happiness? Yeah, so it's it's really it's pretty similar to what we find for personality traits. So you know maybe a little bit lower. So some of the heritability estimates for a single you know, measurement of happiness might be forty percent or something like that. So it's you know similar to personality, and yeah, and I think people are surprised about that. It depends a little bit on how you think about it, though. I think that a lot of times it might be surprising to us because we can kind of look back on our lives and say, oh, I was really unhappy when that thing happened to me. And so we notice the changes and we notice the associations with events. And we don't see the way that our you know, our outlook on life leads to this constant positive or negative evaluations of the things that are happening to us. So in terms of what we would attend to, I think that we might miss the ways that um, if there is this constant effect of our genes in terms of on our outlook, it might not be quite so obvious to us. That it's only when we look across different people and see how they approach the world differently and view the world differently, that it makes a little bit more sense that you would have those effects there. So in the beginning, I talked about the um, hedonic uh, treadmill model, which essentially say that we have a baseline of happiness. And that baseline is different from you and me. And you can you can be, maybe I'm a little bit lower, maybe you're a little bit higher, who knows. But at the end of the day, we have a, a set baseline. And once we have happy experiences, we we it goes up, but then it goes back to that baseline. And if we have negative experiences, we'll feel unhappiness, but then that'll go back to baseline. How how true is that model, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of what I've been studying in my career. Um, and, and we've looked at it in lots of different ways to try to find this. And I think that there's some good evidence for it, and there's some things that make me question how useful that model is. So one of the things that is evidence for it is, is the fact that life events, many life events, don't have as big of an effect as we would think, at least in the long term. So, you know, we've done studies where we looked at what happens to people's life satisfaction when they get married, and it has an effect on them for a little bit, but then they kind of, on average, come back to where they were. Those types of studies, I think people have pointed to as evidence that there's a hedonic treadmill. But at the same time, when we do these studies where we now have 20 or 30 years worth of data, where we sample people every year and ask them what their life satisfaction is, there's an incredible amount of stability from year to year, which seems consistent with the hedonic treadmill. But actually, once we get out to 20, 25, 30 years, then there is actually a lot of change that's going on in people's happiness, which seems to contradict that hedonic treadmill type of idea. And so it is possible that it's not that we're so stable that we can't change and that life events don't matter. It's, again, that we have these very idiosyncratic reactions to life events that make it appear like life events don't matter, but it's really that we just have very, very different reactions to those life events. So over the years, I've become more convinced that even though I do believe that personality matters and I believe that there probably is this something like a baseline or something like a constant effect on the way that we view the world, I've become more open to the ideas that there are ways that we're changing over long periods of time, ways that events change us, but that are difficult to study because they might be pretty idiosyncratic in the way that we react to things. Yeah, and I guess because our personality also changed, so neuroticism declines over over the years and conscientiousness increase over the years, and those two things are actually likely to lead to a little bit higher level of of happiness, so to speak, you'd probably expect happiness to increase over the lifetime of, of a person, I suppose, I suspect. Yeah, and there's, there's there are some patterns that are consistent, and actually, it's it's a little bit it's not doesn't map on completely to that, but there are some changes. So actually, the most common pattern that people find, which isn't always found, but is there's a U-shaped curve from young adulthood through old adulthood. So people, when they're you know 18, 20, they're pretty happy. They then decline into and so you know middle age, 40, 45 is supposed to be the worst part of this, and then people start to climb back up, and then people who are you know, in their 70s and 80s are supposed to be as happy as the people that were 20. Um, that pattern is found in a lot of studies, at least in Western countries. So I think there's something robust about that. Yeah. I've, I've seen some people correlate that with when they get children and when they get their grandchildren yeah. <laughs> and, and yep. things like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we come to the point of our uh, conversation where we turn to discuss how or if it's possible to influence our happiness. And I guess there are only so many of my children I can see being born and there's only so many marriages I can go through. So I can create moments and life events that will create happiness for me. But what about long-term well-being? If I want to raise my level of long-term well-being, is there anything I can do to do that? Yeah, so I think that that is kind of the the big question, I think, in happiness research right now. So again, as I said, we have, now have a pretty good sense about what sorts of things correlate with well-being. And, and now people are trying to translate that into uh, what could we do either in terms of big interventions that we apply broadly or in terms of decisions that people can make in their own lives to make them make themselves a little bit happier. Unfortunately, I have not been super impressed with the 
intervention studies that we what we have done. So there are some. There are some that, that argue that there are uh, successful strategies that people can use. I think that there is some preliminary evidence, but I think we need to do a lot more to to know for sure whether those things are working. So you know the big types of targets I think that people have investigated in these studies are things like mindfulness interventions, so mindfulness meditation, these sorts of things. Some things that have to do with appreciating good things, so gratitude journals and these sorts of things. And I think that there's some promise there, but I want to see more evidence that these work before I, I would be confident that they do. So I think that, you know, for I think for individuals or for even for my own life, what sorts of things I would try to do would be to do a couple of things, which is to look at that descriptive research and see the things that I think that are most strongly associated. And then even if there isn't strong evidence, maybe try some of those things out and also then maybe tailor them to the types of things that I think I value most. You know, there is research that social relationships are a matter for well-being. Again, I have some questions about the nature of that causal association there. I, you know, I think that if I had to bet on it, I would say that pursuing strong social relationships is probably something that is going to be good for our people's well-being. And I think that there's lots of reasons why we might expect it. I think it's often pleasant to be around people that you like, but they also can provide, you know, support in times when things are bad and all these things might add up to improvements in people's overall happiness. I do tend to believe, although I think that, again, finding evidence for this is, is difficult, but I, f- I think that, you know, finding engagement in different types of activities, finding some sorts of, of meaning in your work or your hobbies or these sorts of things, even though I don't have a intervention study that I can point to to prove that this is correct, I think that those are the types of things that I think that, that are going to be likely to uh, make a difference for people. Okay. I think that makes a ton of sense of the social relationship. There's extroverted people generally tend to be happier and that that could maybe be the reason for that. They are more likely to engage in social relations and therefore that that sounds like a, a really interesting one, yeah. One other piece of information of, of evidence that I think is important there too is that I think that even for introverts, I think introverts get a lot of benefit from social interaction as well. It just might be a very different kind. So we've done studies where we have, you know, followed people, you know, by sending text messages, you know, multiple times per day. And you know, one of the possibilities from those studies was that the extroverts were going to love being with people, and the introverts were going to be lo- were going to love being alone. But in all of our studies, and other people have found this as well. Both extroverts and introverts are happier when they're with other people than when they're with alone. And it may just be that extroverts want to go to group settings and parties and these sorts of things, and introverts want to spend time with one or two other people. And they might have different different social activities that they want, but they might both get something out of social activity. So even for introverts, I think we can point to some of the uh, associations with social activity in general to say that they would probably still benefit from some type of social activity and social relationships, even if it's different than what extroverts do. Okay, great. That that gives me a little bit of hope still. So that's good to know. <laughs> right. Now, of, of of my personality traits, you know, you have to, to to like who you are, so to speak. But if there was one that I would like to change, that would probably be my my high level of neuroticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that that might decrease as I age. But is there anything I can do to change that trait? Can you actually go in and take a particular trait and say I would like to to work on that? Is that possible? Yeah, so I think that for people who have really extreme levels of neuroticism, I think that, you know, this, uh, you know, actually, I think that therapy is not actually an unreasonable solution for those people. I think that some of the things that happen in therapy, and there is some evidence, there's some now 
some newer meta-analyses and studies looking at the extent to which uh, therapy can lead to changes in personality traits. And one that it does seem to be related to is changes in neuroticism. And so I think that to the extent that there are extreme, you know, people have uh, extreme scores on these things, I think that that, that can work. And then I think it is possible that some of the things that we're investigating, you know, the researchers are investigating in terms of happiness interventions might actually be interventions for personality traits like neuroticism. So if it is the case that something like a mindfulness uh, intervention works, you could see it working through some of the characteristics of neuroticism. So not worrying so much, letting things go, least uh, not ruminating about things. So it's possible that some of the interventions that people are pursuing will ultimately have their effects through uh, the impact on uh, things like neuroticism. There is some uh, hope, at least, and some theories that would suggest that by changing those ways of, of thinking about the world, th- that you'd be able to make a difference in the, on those traits. What I hear from you is essentially you're saying that the um, treadmill, it's probably not as stable as that model is suggesting that you you have a baseline and you cannot do anything about that. But I'm also not hearing that you can do something and tomorrow you're a completely different person, you know, that it will take time and effort and you can change it a little bit, but it's it's probably not going to be dramatic. Is that, is that sort of where you stand on this? Yeah, I think so. And the other thing I think to keep in mind is that because we haven't found the secret doesn't mean that people aren't successful in changing their happiness. And and again, part of my intuition based on my reading of the research but also just, you know, my observation of myself and other people is that these changes are idiosyncratic. So I think that sometimes people might look at the literature on happiness interventions and get really discouraged about their ability to change. It is worth trying. The solution for you might be different than the solution for me. And the interventions that people are talking about may affect some people, but not others. And so I think that kind of paying attention to what are the things that make people happy and what are the things that seem to be working for them might be the best approach in just in terms of, you know, learning about possibilities, trying new things, seeing what works for them and recognizing that this is something that might take some time and might be unique to you uh, and, and it might not be quite so general. When I read through the uh, research and literature on happiness and personality, one thing that strikes me is the low level of correlations. Um, So when I worked in finance, when we did the statistical models, we didn't look at anything below 0.7 or 0.8. And in psychology, we're down to 0.2 or 0.3, and we're all happy. And just that sounds a little bit nerdy, but just for for the listeners. So correlation essentially just means how much a second variable changes if we change a first variable. So for instance, let's say that you increase so your your change of of neuroticism goes down, how much do your does your happiness increase and and what is the correlations between these two? And the correlation is actually really really low. So I think it's 0.14, 15, 16 or something on neuroticism and and happiness. So how much confidence do we have in this when it sort of boils down to it? Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. And I mean, and there's different ways of looking at that. So I think people have been disappointed with the size of some correlations. And and to me, it makes perfect sense because we all have into different intuitions about what things matter, or we have intuitions that different things matter. So for instance, I think the best example is with income. You know, the correlation between income and happiness is often around 0.15 or 0.2, which just seems like a very small correlation and people sometimes dismiss it as being unimportant. But 
we would only expect income to have a really, really strong correlation if it was the only factor that mattered. So uh, if the correlation was super high, then that would mean that health couldn't matter. And it would mean that social relationships couldn't matter. And it would mean that how much you like your job couldn't matter. And so every time we have another factor that matters, it's going to reduce the correlation between income and happiness because someone could have a low income but have good relationships, good health, and a job that they liked. So to me, I think that the small core I, I, I think that the small correlations do have implications for how we're able to study these things and what types of methods that we're going to be able to use. And, and it means that we have to be really careful about those methods. But to me, the size of the correlations themselves just reflects the fact that these are complicated things and there's complex factors that can influence us. And once we get there, we have to have small correlations. Great. To finish off with, I always ask a, a question, which is sort of top three advice or uh, do's and don'ts. So if you should give our listeners sort of three good advice to increase their level of happiness, however hard and small that might be, what would they be? So one, again, just going back to what I said earlier, is that I think that for the people that are really low in happiness, I think that some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of stability and these sorts of things are not necessarily relevant to what they want to do. And in those cases, I do think that, you know, thinking about therapy and those sorts of things, I think could be really useful. And, to, and so those people shouldn't get uh, discouraged or depressed by kind of the fact that, uh, you know, that there is evidence for stability. And I think that that would be one thing I think that people could try in that case. The second one is to kind of have a sense about what, you know, is what other people are like. So I think that we may have the sense that, you know, if I'm not perfectly happy all the time, that everybody else is always ecstatic. And so in some ways, I think people can kind of feel like even if, if they're fine, they might feel like they're missing something by not being as happy as other people. And so I think one of the things that is useful is just to learn that very few people are a 10 out of 10 on these scales. Lots of people uh, kind of ex experience unhappiness and worry and anxiety. And if that's working for you in your life and you're only a seven or an eight, um, maybe you don't need to be a nine or a 10. And, and so I think sometimes actually just kind of not worrying about worrying or not worrying about not being happy enough, I think can kind of make people focus on other things, which is ultimately uh, beneficial. And then the third piece of advice then I think would be just to kind of think about the things that are the biggest correlates. And that's where some of the other strategies that we talked about before in terms of, well, it's probably worth it to try making sure that social relationships are pretty good. It's probably worth it to try to think about things that you can be engaged in and find a sense of meaning, even if we're not 100% sure that those are causal effects there. I think that there's a good chance they are. I think that it's worth trying. And so those are the types of things that I would try to spend my time on if I was concerned about getting happier. Fantastic. Listen, Richard, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me. I really, really enjoyed this. I enjoyed your book as well. I'll, I'll encourage my listeners to, to read your books. I think they are fantastic. Thanks a lot for your time and insights. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I had a, lot of, had a very good time. Thanks. What a great interview. I took three things away from my talk with Richard. One, our level of happiness is linked with our personality. Our personality is the pattern in our thoughts, belief, and behavior. Although it may change slightly from day to day, our personality is as a whole quite stable over time. The most tested and valid way to measure personality is the big five. Neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. And our score on those big five correlates with our level of happiness. In particular, 
the higher you score on extroversion and agreeableness, and the lower you score on neuroticism, the more likely you are to be happy. Two, our personality and our level of happiness is pretty stable and quite heritable. About 50% of our personality is genetic. We know this from extensive twin studies where identical twins separated at birth are compared. I was not surprised that our level of personality was heritable, but I was surprised to learn that our level of happiness was also highly heritable. About 40-50% to of our level of happiness is genetic. And three, we can influence our base level of happiness. Although Richard is not suggesting that it's easy to change our level of happiness, he does suggest three things that you can do. One, therapy does work. Two, manage your social relations. And three, engage in meaningful activities. They correlate well with happiness and they will make a difference. Richard has studied personality and happiness for a long time, and he is right. We need to know more about what makes us happy. Until next time, take care.